Hey, I'm Pastor Sean. I want to thank you so much for checking out our, our website and our sermons online. And uh, we are so glad you're making use of these for your spiritual growth. And, and, uh, but we do want to encourage you. We, we believe that uh, our online ministry, our online sermons are a supplement to the local church. And so we really hope that uh, you and the community you live in will find a local church, a local church that believes the Bible, teaches the Bible regularly, and applies it to your life. And so uh, if you live in our community, we'd love to have you visit here in Yorktown. We're in 101 Village Avenue. And uh, we have three service times, 8, 9.30, and 11. And so if you don't have a home church, I hope you'll give us a try at one of our service times. We're beginning a new six-week series this fall, uh, going through the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that I was really convicted about recently as I read through the Gospels is, is how much time Jesus spent in prayer. So here's the Son of God and spent hours and hours each day uh, seeking the will of His Heavenly Father, communing with His Heavenly Father. And, and so I wanted to take us as a church through uh, the Lord's Prayer where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. I want us to be a people that recognize both prayer to be the fuel of the gospel and an opportunity to commune and be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. So I, pray, I hope that you'll join us for this six-week series, When You Pray. If you, uh, by the way, don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible and you can't afford one, take that one, read it. It's our gift to you. Um, But we're on verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6. If you just want to turn there, put your thumb on that. But as we work through the Lord's Prayer, this portion of Scripture, it should be taking us somewhere. We we don't want to be the same as when we began even five weeks ago. It, It should be directing our minds towards something. And it should, it should be, be directing our minds toward being more God-centered. It should be directing our minds toward being more kingdom-minded. It should make us more aware that we're utterly dependent on the Lord for absolutely everything. It should make us reflective on the condition of our hearts, both before Christ, before we're in Christ, and, and after Christ saves us should make us more mindful about how we love one another. And it should certainly make us vigilant in our fight against sin. And this week, we're going to be very reflective on the condition of our heart. And I want, what I want to do is poke and prod, and I want to see if there lies in us any bitterness, if there's, there's any malice towards someone created in God's image. I, I want us to see if there's within us this habitual unforgiveness. And by God's grace, I want us to rid ourselves of it through the washing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to take this passage of Scripture, Matthew six twelve here, and I want to divide it into two sections Section one, I want us to focus on and examine God's forgiveness that he freely extends to us. And section two, I I, want to examine our forgiveness that we give to people created in the image of God. And by the end of this message today, I hope to have built for you a theology of forgiveness that, that will benefit our specific local church. And I want to share our burden with you right out of the gate I've been on staff at Coastal Community Church now for around 11 years. Uh, Pastor Sean hired me when I was 10. And in that 11 years, there's there's been a lot that's changed, right? And what what will never change is our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What won't change is our commitment to exalting Christ and having clarity on the scriptures and opening the word and rightly dividing the word of God. 
But the way that our church must function as we grow is changing. And that change, a lot of times, even for us on staff, is it, it can be a grind. And on top of that, our, our numbers have changed, and, and we're hoping to plan a missional campus in Gloucester, Lord willing. The enemy often uses change to threaten unity, doesn't he? Often uses change to threaten unity to distract us from the goal of the Great Commission, to keep us from being conformed more into the image of Christ. And I believe that forgiveness and bearing with one another is is the God-centered remedy for this potential problem for our local church where we are, where God's positioned us currently. And so the sermon this morning is relevant to every single person in this room over the course of three services. And it certainly should have an impact on how we treat our family, how we treat our friends, how we treat our neighbor. And so let's look at our text, Matthew 6, 12, and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to kind of wade through this together. Matthew 6, 12, these are the words of Jesus. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, God, I, I, I just declare my utter dependence on you. Lord, in Ephesians 6.10 comes to my mind. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And Lord, as a congregation, we're so needy. And God, you remedied our biggest need, which was separation from you. And you've reconciled us to yourself through Jesus. And God, that has implications for the here and now. And so I pray that you would help us, God, to see those implications Help us to be changed by your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So debt, and some, some of your translations may say transgressions. Right? That may be what you're more familiar with. But think about that word debt for a minute. For some of you hearing that word, it, it churns your stomach. <clears throat> just, just hearing the word debt, right? House debt, car debt, school loans that, that you'll never pay off. Credit card debt, debt that you owe a family member or a friend because you borrowed money to pay off another debt, right? Money that you owe to the government or, or money owed for hospital bills or furniture that's been financed or engagement rings that are still being paid off or wedding debt or honeymoon debt or timeshare debt. Right? Financially, we're a culture that lives life in the red, aren't we? And if that's true externally of us, Living, living life in the red, then, then certainly that's true internally of us because the external behaviors that we exhibit, the things that we can observe with our eye is only the outward expression of what's going on internally. And Jesus here, I believe, is making a spiritual point in verse 12 of Matthew 6. And this is the spiritual point. Right? We're all debtors and our debt is rightfully ours. We're all debtors and our debt is rightfully ours. That's what the text is getting at initially. This, that's why this word debt can be translated into the word trespass in other translations. And this, is, this is a spiritual issue that Jesus is getting at. We have a spiritual debt. Now, that may seem like an obvious takeaway, but I want to press into this for a little bit because there, there's, there's this external temporal monetary debt 
that may come to mind whenever we think about the word debt, but that pales in comparison to this spiritual debt that we stand in if we aren't in Christ. Now, a function of God's moral law, which are the Ten Commandments, right? You can find those in Exodus chapter 20. But a a function, not the only function, but a function of God's moral law is to demonstrate for us our spiritual debt, that we're, we're absolutely bankrupt apart from the person and work of Christ. Pastor Sean talked a few weeks ago about the holiness of God. And I believe, if I'm remembering right, that he even talked about God being this consuming fire, right? Hebrews 12 verses 28 and 29, it talks about our God being a consuming fire and how we're to approach him with reverence and with awe. Now, how are we to approach a consuming fire that is our God with reverence and with awe? How how does one do that? It's by keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly. Keeping them perfectly. Many of your children have them memorized, right? You may have had them memorized at some point along the way, but what's their significance? What should they bring to mind primarily for those that aren't in Christ? They should remind us of God's holy character, and they should remind us of the standard for fellowship with the God of the cosmos. So if you want to have a right relationship with God, according to the moral law, here are the requirements, right? No other gods. That's not just an Eastern religion thing, right? We have little idols that capture our hearts. When In the New Testament, when the, the Apostle Paul talks about beware of the love of money, right? This love of money for us can become this idol in and of itself and begin to take the throne room of our hearts over. The second one is no carved image, Right? Pictures of God. Think of, think of the, the golden calf story in the Old Testament, right? We, we think of the golden calf as Moses went away, the Israelites got worried, so they fashioned this golden calf and said, this is the new God that we'll worship. But that's not exactly what went on. Moses went, they were scared. They, they wanted to see God. They wanted to commune with God. They didn't know exactly how to, so they, they made this visual representation of, the, of Yahweh, the God who they know rescued them out of Egyptian slavery, and they said, this represents God. Then all of a sudden, we see judgment come into the picture on them, and why is that? It's because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So no carved image of God. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain, right? This lack, this habitual lack of reverence for the Lord in honoring of the Lord's day, Sabbath. Six days of work, one day set aside for complete devotion to the Lord, right? We see that in the Old Testament. We see that reaffirmed in the New Testament. In honoring of your father and mother, do not murder. Jesus elevated that and said if there's hatred in your heart towards someone, that you're, you're a murderer at heart. Right? Don't commit adultery. Jesus elevated that and said, if you even look at a woman with lust, then you're an adulterer at heart. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. Those are four commandments, the first four, that deal primarily with our relationship with God. And then six commandments that that deal with our relationship with other people that demonstrates where we are relationally with God. And all we have to do is keep them perfectly at all times forever. 
That's all we got to do. It's not too hard. We can't do that, right? We giggle because we go through that list and we tick all the boxes. I know that I tick all the boxes. I've broken every single one of these Ten Commandments. I do this because I'm a sinner. That's my identity apart from the intervening work of Jesus. Since the sin of Adam, the fall of Adam, that historical account in the book of Genesis, everyone is born into sin. So our identity from the moment that we're born, our identity is that of sinner. That's what theologians call the doctrine of original sin. Now, because I'm a sinner, I do what's in my nature which is what? It's to sin. It's to sin. So, so I look at the law in my sinful state, one of which is pride, and I say I can try to keep those so that I can be right with God. Let me, let me, uh, let me attempt that, right? Because I'm someone who, man, I want to I wanna fix things myself. I want to see the problem, and I want to fix the problem, right? My wife comes to me with a problem. She tells me the problem. The first thing that I want to do is figure out the resolution to the problem that she's talking about, right? So I see these Ten Commandments here, and I think, let me fix myself. But the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Verses 10 through the first part of verse 11, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the law. So I'm under this curse Right, and I begin to feel the weight of the moral law here. I'm under this curse. The law exposes to me, exposes to me that I'm a sinner, I'm a transgressor, I'm a debtor, and that the debt is my own and that my debt separates me from God because I'm living life in the red. So we can't pay our debt because we're broke. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. We can't pay our debt because we're broke. There's no money in our account, is there? We're in the red. Every single day, we're in the red. Every moment, we're in the red. We have overdraft fees all over the place. And certainly, the Scriptures support this, right? Paul goes on. He says in Romans 3, uh, uh, 10 uh, 10 to 12, he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No No one even seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So this is is our position apart from Jesus, right? We can't change our debt position, not even by a penny, right? We can't even gain an inch. We can't gain any ground on beginning to dig ourselves out of the red in life. We like the wherewithal to pay. And and not only that, but we don't even want to pay. The text says that we, we, we don't even seek for God. Like there's not even this desire in us to pay off this spiritual debt that we have. So what's the solution? What's the solution to this? Our debt must be transferred to another's account. The word another, capitalized A. Right? Our debt must be transferred to another's account. Now think back to all the debt I spoke of credit cards and such. Now, what if the debt collector, and when I say debt collector, capital D, capital C here, right, there's this 
heresy in the church about how Jesus paid a ransom to Satan to buy our salvation back. And that's foreign to the scriptures, right? The debt was paid to God. But what if the debt collector, God, he came along and he said, I want you to know that this is the dollar amount that you owe on all your debt. And by the way, you're never going to be able to pay it. But I don't want you to pay it because I've taken care of it. Taking care of your debt. And then what if the debt collector continued to speak and he said, and by the way, I've covered all the future debt that you would have incurred as well. And so now you'll always live life in the black. You'll forever live life in the black. How freeing would that be? Wouldn't that be freeing to us? When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray here in the Lord's Prayer, the word debt, right, the, the Greek word for debt here, it would, have, it would have brought monetary visuals to the minds of the disciples here. Biblical law during that time required for periodic forgiveness of monetary debt. They required it in, in the seventh year and the 50th years. So this illustration of forgiving debts, it would have been a drastic, freeing, celebratory one. The disciples would have This would have cheered them up a bit. This would have excited them a bit. The beauty is that this biblical law should have pointed the Jewish people to the spiritual debt that God promised to remedy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where their minds should have went when they heard Jesus talk about this. It should point us to this unpayable debt that Jesus paid on the cross to God the Father and sealed through his resurrection. Paul confirms this later in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. We look back, we know Christ was hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We're offenders. We're debtors. We're the people that spend beyond our means. And God has every right to leave us to our own devices to pay the wages of sin, which is death, right? Physical death, spiritual death, according to Romans 6.23 But he didn't. He looked down on us with grace and with love and with compassion. And he paid the debt that we owed to him to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he credited to us Christ's righteousness through the Holy Spirit to ensure that we never incur debt again. Man, it's encouraging. That's the type of forgiveness that God offers to us debtors. It's the kind of forgiveness he offers to us debtors. It's comprehensive. Now, we're positionally right with the Lord. Those of us that are in Christ, we're positionally right with the Lord. We're fully forgiven, but we have responsibilities as believers, Right, we have responsibilities of believers. It, it's a trampling of grace to think that we can disengage from our o- obedience. In Christ, obedience is expected. In Christ, obedience is required of us. 
And so that leads us to, to our forgiveness. The second part of verse 12 here. Now as believers, we fail to model the type of forgiveness that God has given us comprehensively through Jesus Christ. And I know that for the, for the most part, we would all agree with that, but I wanna spend the remainder of our time this morning doing three things. One, I wanna think through, um, I just wanna think through for a minute what unforgiveness does to believers. What does unforgiveness do to believers? Secondly, I want to identify two types of, of, of forgiveness that the, the scriptures direct our minds toward. And third, <clears throat> I just want to give 10 practical implications from this passage of scripture. And so first off, what unforgiveness does to a believer? What unforgiveness does to a believer? In a sense, all believers struggle with unforgiveness, right? Because we still have remaining indwelling sin within us. But, but somebody who claims to be a Christian and harbors habitual bitterness, habitual resentment, habitual unforgiveness really is a contradiction, really is a contradiction. Now, what I'm about to say, it's very frank, but it's very true. And I believe that we can't repent of sin, until we see the vulgarity of sin, right? If you're like me, I, in my confession of sin, I tend to kind of round off the, the sharp edges, right? Am I the only one that does that? Like sometimes when I confess sin, it sounds like I'm confessing a strength of mine. Sometimes I just love Jesus too much, you know? But we need to see the vulgarity of sin. We need to see those sharp edges. We need to see the danger of sin so that we can repent of it quickly, so it's imperative, imperative for us to understand that unforgiveness is a character quality of Satan. Unforgiveness is a character quality of Satan. How is that for vulgar? John in Revelation 12, 10, he says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, thankfully, this is in the context of Satan's ultimate demise, right? So this is a great passage of scripture for us as believers to see that this is what it comes to for Satan. But here, Satan's described, if you're looking at this text, I think if it's on the screen still, he's, he's described as the accuser of our brothers. The accuser of our brothers. And the text says that he busies himself with this task day and night, day and night, day and night. So Satan, he's brooding here, isn't he? Think... He's thinking of your offenses all the time. That's what he's busying his mind with is your offenses and he hopes to harm you and he hopes to speak of your offenses all the time. Believer, does this sound like you this morning? Right, we need to be honest with ourselves. Does this sound like us? Right, those of us who harbor habitual unforgiveness spend all of our time brooding Right? We spend all of our time thinking and accusing, which according to the scriptures is the work of Satan. It's the work of Satan. To harbor unforgiveness is to be conformed into the image of the accuser. 
to harbor unforgiveness is to be conformed into the image of the accuser. Now, you may say, well, it's not accusing if it's true. All right, by the way, I've heard that justification used for gossip as well, and sometimes we give prayer requests, the temptation in our small groups, just pray for so-and-so because he's cheating on his wife. Right, we, we share or air out other people's dirty laundry, right? And, and our justification is, well, well, it's true, so it's okay for me to do that. But aren't Satan's accusations about us grounded in many truths as well? Right? Aren't his accusations grounded in many truths as well? The sins that he reminds us of, the sins that he tempts us with, are they not actual sins that we struggle with? And thankfully, as believers... Satan's accusations, they come too late, right? As believers, we've already accused ourselves and we're in Christ. And so those accusations fall benign at the feet of our ruling and reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. So we must see and we must say that unforgiveness is, in fact, a character quality of Satan. Next, unforgiveness is a hard, hardening mechanism used by Satan. It's a hardening mechanism used by Satan. It's used by Satan to desensitize us. Unforgiveness is used by Satan to desensitize us. It's used by Satan to harden us toward God and the gospel. And I'm convinced that more and more that absolutely everything in this life is either hardening us towards God and the gospel or it's softening us towards God and the gospel. There's no neutral ground. Harden, soften. Harden, Soften. And this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I've been talking with pastors about some of the people in our congregation, some of the people in their congregation. Again, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but we have believers that set things in front of their eyes like Game of Thrones. And I've never seen Game of Thrones, but I hear that it's highly pornographic. And I've had some conversations with believers before where I ask them, why are you setting that before your eyes? And their response to me is, it doesn't affect me like it affects you. Well, that's not really a good thing, is it? If we step back and think about that, that means we're, we're, we're being hardened by the things that we're setting before our eyes. We're being desensitized by the vulgarity of the sin that we're setting before our eyes. Unforgiveness is just as dangerous. Unforgiveness for us is just as dangerous. It desensitizes us. It hardens us. And what's the root of unforgiveness? What, what's at its root Pride. Pride is at the root of unforgiveness. It's a failure to consider the vulgarity of your own sins. It's a failure to express gratitude to the God that didn't count your sin debts against you, but instead granted you forgiveness through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At its root, unforgiveness is self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. Lack, and, and, and if we need some evidence, some tangible evidence for that, right, there's, our culture is plagued with a lack of kindness. Right? You, you can get on social media for five seconds and just see, we lack kindness. And I believe that's one of the many manifestations of this unforgiving, bitter sin that's taken root in our heart and has gone unchecked for so long. We begin to look at everybody as opposition and everybody as opponents. So what does the word counsel us to do? The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Look, Satan's roar is prowling around like a roaring lion. He, Peter wrote this to a, a, a congregation that's experiencing suffering from being persecuted by people. He, he's writing it to, to people that are facing temptations. And it certainly is relevant to us for those of us harboring unforgiveness. We have to be sober-minded on the matter. We have to be watchful on the matter. We have to know that unforgiveness is, in fact, a tool of Satan. Next, what else does unforgiveness do to the believer? Unforgiveness distracts us from growing as believers. Unforgiveness distracts us from growing as believers. Pastor Sean reminded us a few weeks ago that God's will for us is simple. It's our sanctification, right? He grounded that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, nothing can, can distract us more from sanctification as believers than this constant brooding on a fractured, broken relationship, right? It's all-encompassing of our mind. And our culture calls it drama, right? We make reality shows and sitcom shows out of it, and we laugh at it. We laugh at people who har- harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, and what we do is call it entertainment, don't we? That's how desensitized we are to it even as the local church, right? Some of us wouldn't know what to do with our time if, if it weren't consumed with being angry and unforgiving towards someone. Habitual drama to us is like a warm blanket on a cold day when re- in reality it's stifling our personal growth as believers and it's disobedience to the God that saved us. What else does unforgiveness do to the believer? Unforgiveness distracts us from being obedient to the Great Commission. Unforgiveness distracts us from being obedient to the Great Commission. We're stewards here this side of eternity, and the Lord's graciously given us a certain amount of time to play a role in his successful plan to evangelize the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. But how can we share, and this is an important question for us to ask, how can we share the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every nation when there's, when there's murder in our hearts. How can we do that when there's murder in our hearts towards someone that's created in the image of God? And how can love and hate reside in the same place? And how can we exhort people to flee the sin that they once cherished because Christ their Savior is so much better when we're harboring the sin of hatred, of murder, of unforgiveness, bitterness. We're harboring that in our own hearts. I've heard stories of people that have harbored bitterness for so long. And and by God's grace, they've come to a place in life where they have repented of it. And the Lord gives them joy. That's what the Lord does. But they look back on their past and in tears they say, I've wasted so much time. I've wasted so much time. I've been such a poor steward of what God's commissioned me to do here on earth. I was bitter at people when I could have been proclaiming the gospel of peace to people. Stories like that should motivate us to repent quickly, right? The final thing unforgiveness does to a believer, it's not the only thing. These are just a few things that the Lord brought to my mind as I was preparing this. But unforgiveness is bad for our health. Unforgiveness is bad for our health. Listen to this study from Johns Hopkins. Studies have found that the act of unforgiveness 
can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving sleep, reducing blood pressure, anxiety, and depression. Forgiveness is not just about saying the words. It's an active process in which you make a conscious decision to let go of negative feelings, whether the person deserves it or not. This is science only confirming what the scriptures have said for a really long time, right? Forgiveness is actually good for you. It's actually good for you. You see, we think of God's commandments as uh, in, a, in a shallow way, we think of them solely as restrictive at times, don't we? We should think of them as something that reveals God's character, that brings him glory, and something that's actually good for us. God's commandments are actually good for us. So thank God for, for common grace, that he, he would allow these researchers and, this, and these scientists to discover that they're actually health-promoting benefits to practicing the discipline, if you will, of forgiveness. But they're only confirming what the scriptures have already communicated. It's good for you to forgive. So we've examined God's forgiveness. We've looked at how unforgiveness shapes us as believers. Let me set for just as we close down a new trajectory. Let's, let's, let's define these two levels of forgiveness. And then I wanna close with some specific and practical implications for those of you that call Coastal Community Church home. So we're defining forgiveness here, uh, a tangible indicator that we're forgiven. And if you're taking notes, I don't have this space in your notes, but you can write this down. But a tangible indicator that you're forgiven by God through the personal work of Jesus Christ is your heart posture. It's your heart posture. So how can we think through forgiveness in a way that honors the Lord so that we may love God, love others, and be in a spiritually vibrant state? I believe the scriptures promote two levels of forgiveness. Two levels of forgiveness. Level one forgiveness is internal forgiveness. Internal Forgiveness, And I'm just gonna read you a few quick passages. Jesus says in Mark 11, 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anyone against, anything against anyone so that your Father also who's in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. And then Matthew 6, uh, right? We read the first part of this uh, prayer, but the second part where Jesus is kind of bringing things down, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. And then Paul in Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So these for us are difficult passages, right? And it's okay to ask questions of the passage in, in, a, in a humble manner. And question one that I have coming to this text is, is God's forgiveness contingent on my ability to forgive? Right, that's probably what's, kind of going around in, in some of your minds as well. I mean, the, the answer to the first question should be apparent to us by now, but a good rule for reading Scripture is to make sure that you harmonize passages together. Pastor Sean talks about interpreting unclear passages with what? With clear passages. Four of you have gotten that out of the 15 years he's been pastoring. They <clears throat> un interpret unclear passages in light of clear passages, right? So God's, God the Father's forgiveness is based solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? On his merits. And 
Uh, otherwise, we could feel the sin of unforgiveness in with any other sin, couldn't we? And it would disqualify us if we don't do the legwork of harmonizing these passages. It would disqualify us from our salvation, right? Your salvation is not contingent on your ability to be perfect. We've already covered that we can't be perfect. But this passage is saying that a person truly converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ will not withhold forgiveness because they're grateful for the magnitude of God's forgiveness of them in Christ Jesus. Question two that I had of this text, how can I forgive someone who hasn't repented, right? Wouldn't I be enabling that person in their sin or wouldn't I be compromising the truth about that individual's sin? And the answer to this question is this, these passages are speaking about our heart posture before the Lord. At this point, we're not interacting with the offender. We're interacting vertically with the Lord, Right? This is internal forgiveness. So where does unforgiveness uh, begin? Unforgiveness begins in our hearts as we brood and as we become bitter and angry. It's hatred. And Jesus, again, elevates it, calls it murder in Matthew 5. And John says in 1 John 3 that everybody who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So these passages of Scripture, their concern is about what's going on internally. Are we brooding? Are we hating? Are we hoping for the demise of an individual that's created in the image of God? Because it is bad for us, for our hearts to be in this condition. It's not good for us. So the word of God's telling us to meditate. And by meditating, it could mean you're actually memorizing the word of God, but meditate on the great forgiveness provided for you by Christ Jesus and allow that to wash away all the hatred, all the bitterness, all the malice, all the unforgiveness that's residing in your heart towards someone created in God's image. Now, having said that, you can't grant someone forgiveness that hasn't asked, hasn't repented, hasn't asked for your forgiveness. That's not what these passages of Scripture that we just looked at, that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking vertically. They're talking about your heart posture before the Lord, right? This is level one internal forgiveness, and it's good for your soul, and it softens your heart towards God, towards the gospel, and towards the person that's offended you. And here's the beauty of it. If you get this level one forgiveness down, this humble heart posture before the Lord, and if the Lord grants repentance to the person that offended you and they seek your forgiveness, you'll be in a place to grant them forgiveness. That's level one internal forgiveness. There's another level, level two. This is called granted. It's granted forgiveness. Jesus says this in Luke 17. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So now there's a third person at play, right? There's you, there's your heart posture before the Lord, and now there's an individual at play here that you're conversing with, isn't there? And what I like about this is right after Jesus gives this uh, imperative here, the disciples respond by saying, increase our faith, like build us up, right? And certainly that's, that's an appropriate response, isn't it? It takes some humility, but Jesus here, he's speaking about granted forgiveness. Now, granted forgiveness, it can't happen apart from eternal forgiveness. That's the prerequisite. Level one's a prerequisite to level two. 
But granted forgiveness happens when the offended party comes to you, confesses their sin to you, and asks for your forgiveness. And based on your canceled debt before God, because of the person and work of Christ, it should be unthinkable for you to withhold forgiveness from that individual. It should be unthinkable. The Lord did say in Psalm 103, he said, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So how in the world could we withhold forgiveness with a promise like that made by the Father, concluded for us by the person and work of Christ, and sealed in us by the Holy Spirit? How could we withhold that type of forgiveness? Our prayer should be, increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith as we meditate on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So allow me to close this morning with a few specific practical implications for our local church here, Coastal Community Church. I'm going to give you ten, and they're not in your notes, but I'm going to post them on Coastal's Facebook later so that you, can, you don't have to... Stress yourself about jotting everything down here. Ten practical implications for us. Turn your, in, turn, turn your unforgiveness into an opportunity to meditate on God's forgiveness. Secondly, confess the unforgiveness in your heart to God and see it as self-righteousness, as pride, as envy, as murder. Be vulgar with, with your sins. See forgiveness as a sanctifying exercise from God. See forgiveness as a sanctifying exercise from God. If you've offended somebody, repent. Go to them today. Ask for forgiveness. Next, assume the best of others' motives. Many times bitterness is the result of an assumption we've made about an individual, isn't it? Next, be generous when you speak to others. Be generous when you listen to others. We need, we need more generosity in our culture, don't we? More kindness in our culture. Next, don't speak one word of negativity about another person. Could we, could we make a commitment that Coastal Community Church is going to not speak one negative word about another person? This is gossip, even if it's true. Next, if you find that you're harboring unforgiveness because you've offended, you, you've been the offender, either let it go. You've, if you find that you're harboring unforgiveness because you've been offended, you have two choices. You either let it go, right? This is this internal forgiveness, never to dwell on it again, or you go to the person that's offended you and have a conversation with the goal of restoration. Now, those are our only two options. Next, don't allow unforgiveness to stifle what God's doing at this local church. There's no place for it among God's people. And then finally, don't use past hurt. And I hope you hear me. Don't use your past hurt as an excuse to be closed off from the community of God. So these are our 10 practical implications. And my prayer is that the Lord will use it to further sanctify you, using it to further sanctify me and challenge me and my thinking as well. Um, allow me to, to close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, God, just the, um, the time that we've had to think through the forgiveness that you've offered us in Christ Jesus.
And God, I pray, Lord, that based on that forgiveness, Lord, we would be a people who refuse to harbor unforgiveness, who refuse to harbor bitterness. Because, Lord, we're called to be stewards this side of eternity. So help us to be good stewards with the time that you've allowed us here on this earth. Thank you for this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.